You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Hi, and welcome back. This is episode 38 of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. Cook can ferment. Nutritional basics. Today, I wanted to talk about concepts in nutrition regarding food prep and specifically storing food. And I wanted to kind of take you through not only the nutritional changes that a food undergoes with something like fermentation, but also why we've gotten away from it and some of the technologies that have fundamentally changed the entire food industry. Cooking, canning, and fermenting are the basics when it comes to food and food storage. If you don't know how to do these things, it makes it really hard to utilize really fresh ingredients, especially if you're growing them or wild foraging them yourself. Because anybody knows who has a garden or goes and gets wild foraged plants, you need to process them typically to make them not only edible, but to keep them for a period of time. Sure, there's some fresh stuff you can eat right away, but a lot of that food you're going to want to store, and you're going to want to try to store it sometimes for months or even up to years. And it can be done through modern technology and through ancestral and traditional food storing practices. So we're going to kind of get into all those concepts today. It's easy nowadays to just throw everything we need in the freezer and in the fridge. I mean, every household in America and in any other westernized country will have a refrigerator. I mean, they're a great piece of technology, but they are also relatively new. Refrigeration probably is a single technology that fundamentally changed the way we interact with food. It wasn't really up until the 1940s that refrigeration really gained in popularity. About half of every household had a refrigerator in, in the 1940s. And by the 1950s, it was almost 80% of households in America had some type of an electric fridge. Now, often they were a lot smaller and a little less efficient than they are now, but it gained in popularity very, very quickly. And what that did, it not only changed the way households interacted with food and their capabilities of storing food, especially protein. You know, in the 1950s, fishing and hunting were a lot more popular than they are today. And if you had a deep freezer, your ability to store protein for up to a year to sometimes multiple years if it's packed right and kept frozen really changed the game in the way you could store meat. Before that, it was a lot of drying and curing meat. So things like jerkies and sausage and a lot of cured meats like salamis and prosciutto, things like that, which is an art form of its own. And I think that it's a great skill to learn how to do to cure and dry your own meat. I mean, any hunter will know that aging your meat a little bit is going to enhance the flavor because you get enzymatic breakdown of that protein, of that meat. So venison is a good example of this, where if you're in a cold enough climate in the fall and you get your deer, you can hang it up, sometimes for a matter of weeks in a garage setting, or if you have a hanging freezer or fridge, you can do that too. And that's what we do with our beef. If you see aged beef, it's just meat that's been hung for a number of weeks or even up to months or years sometimes. And it's a drying and aging process and you get an enzymatic breakdown of the meat and you get a mold essentially that forms over it. But what it does is it seals it off to oxygen 
and heat, which are the two major components that will break down any type of protein and cause it to rot. But with deep freezers really coming on board, a lot of that drying process an aging process was kind of lost in everyday households anyway. But what refrigeration also did is that it caused distribution to happen. So if you think about the 1950s and what was going on with food, it was a major, major breakthrough in technology. And this was largely based around refrigeration because then all of a sudden you had the ability to have refrigeration trucks. You see what I'm getting at with that? And you had the ability to store things like TV dinners and frozen packaged prepared meals, which had never been possible before, even, you know, 10 to 20 years previously. The capability just wasn't there. It was just not possible. And so, you know, by the mid 50s and through the 60s, convenience foods were on a sharp rise and they still are very popular today. I mean, you couldn't go to the grocery store and get frozen peas, frozen lasagna in the 1920s. You had to buy things fresh, and you either had to cook them, can them, dry age, or ferment them for long-term storage. And that was just how things worked in the 1920s, at least at the kind of home consumer level. Now, there were commercial freezers in the 1920s, and they were in use. But as far as a home unit goes, that was very expensive back then. It was about the equivalent of $7,000. And most people back then weren't buying a refrigeration in the late 20s for $7,000. I mean, I'm sure some people had them, but it wasn't very common until much later on when they got a lot cheaper. But think about everything that we use refrigeration and freezers for, especially when it comes to your food. Chances are, Most of you listening probably don't do any type of fermentation throughout the year. Maybe some do, and I hope a lot of you do. But it's not something we have to consciously think about anymore. One, because we have an overabundance of food, and if your cucumbers go bad in the fridge, you just toss them out and you go to the store and buy more. And that can become an issue, especially nutritionally, because with something like fermentation and a lacto-ferment, which is just lactobacillus, so it's a lack of oxygen. You seal it up. And with natural bacteria, again, you get enzymatic breakdown of, let's say, cucumbers into pickles. And it not only increases the beneficial bacteria, the lactobacillus bacteria, and enzymes that go along with that, but it increases actual nutritional properties. So you can pull out more nutrients on a lactoferment than you would eating them fresh, and they're easier to digest. I mean, if you think about everything you can ferment, you can ferment every vegetable that you're familiar with. You can ferment potatoes, you can ferment cucumbers into pickles, asparagus, carrots, you know, then you get into things like sauerkraut and kimchi, where there's major cultures around these fermented foods, and they become very, very important. Not only in the culture, but to your health, you know. And it's a a very, very simple process. It's just salt and water. That's it. Salt, water, and time, really, is what it takes to ferment things. And it can be stored for years that way, if it's in a cool, dry, dark place to be stored. And that's why, traditionally, people had root cellars, because it kept things cold and dark. And you could put up food that way, seasonally. Because most people in the 1920s They had gardens, and they had some livestock, like goats or a milk cow, and they needed to store food. 
Otherwise, it was just wasteful and it would go bad and you wouldn't have enough to eat through the year. So with any modern technology that comes on board, such as refrigeration, there needs to be a lot of nuance around it in your own mind and in your own household. Because if you lose the ability and you lose the skill set in something as basic as fermentation, it can hinder your nutrition. And sure, you can buy fermented foods, but chances are you probably don't think about buying fermented foods a ton. You might buy some sauerkraut occasionally <clears throat> or some kimchi, but it's a lot easier to do it yourself. Well, maybe not easier, but it's more fulfilling and it's a lot more nutritious too. Because you don't know the quality of ingredients that are being used for the kimchi, let's say, or for the sauerkraut. You know, it could be pretty old cabbage. You would have no idea. And so by having the ability to do it yourself, it puts you in direct contact with that food to be able to select the freshest ingredients. And in an interesting way, refrigeration has changed our relationship with food. On not only a practical level, but it's taken away a lot of our skill sets that we used to possess, that every person used to have. I mean, you go to the supermarket now, and there's just banks and banks of refrigeration down the aisles, you know, frozen pizzas and vegetables, even the meat and seafood counter, you know, all of that is refrigeration, which is very, very new. Grain storage is another interesting one for carbohydrates things like rice. You know, that's something that can be dried and stored for years and years. So rice, for example, always a good idea to soak it before you cook it. It gets rid of the phytic acid in there. And phytic acid can rob some nutrients from your body. So by soaking it, and neutralize that acid before you eat it. It becomes more digestible because you get some neutralization of the acid that's naturally in rice. So always a good idea to soak your rice beforehand. And you don't have to dump out the water. You can use that water that you've soaked the rice in to cook it with. You know, canning is one of the best ways to store carbohydrates for months and months at a time. You know, things like jams especially. You know, but even protein. You can can fish or meat. You know, it's a very, very popular way to do it. And you won't degrade any nutritional value that way. And typically this is in kids with seasons because you only get cucumbers for a limited time of year. And if you want to make pickles, you have to make them this time of year in the summer. But what that does is it sets you up. It puts you in further cadence with the seasons down the road because it keeps you eating fermented foods through the fall and the winter months into the next spring when you have fresh greens coming back up. And that's exactly when you need those fermented foods because you need more probiotics and you need to be working on the microbiome in the wintertime because what are you doing? You're consuming way more meat, right? Fresh vegetables are at a minimum in the winter. You might have some potatoes and some other greens depending on the climate you're in. But fresh greens are hard to come by, at least traditionally in winter months. And so by fermenting and storing them, you're enhancing a lot of times the vitamin C content with a lacto-ferment, which is really interesting because vitamin C will help break down protein in the gut. And so things like sauerkraut with a side of meat, which is, you know, a pretty traditional European meal, you know, especially in Germany, it helps actually digest that meat and break it down. 
it, it's almost performs alchemy inside your gut and makes it a little bit easier for your body to break down and utilize. So there's combinations too that we've gotten away from because it's so easy just to pull out a you know frozen pizza and throw it in the oven. But by stacking these practices, again, you're feeding your body the things it needs through the year instead of just feeding your body things in that very moment. It makes it easier to kind of follow these seasonal practices when you have food put up in a way that you can utilize it through the months naturally. And I'm not saying that you need to go unplug your refrigerator because that's ridiculous. I mean, it's a fantastic piece of technology, but it's important to know why it's there and what it's doing and what it's taken away because it has taken away some stuff like any technology does. It provides you benefits, but it also takes some things away, whether it's ability or, in this case, actual nutrition. I mean, science is kind of now waking up to the fact that the microbiome is of crucial importance. And really, just a simple fermentation will provide you with a ton of probiotics and other nutrients, such as an increase of almost something like 300% in cabbage with a lacto-ferment that you can get in vitamin C. So when I talk about increases in certain nutrients when it comes to fermentation, there can be dramatic increases. And again, for the winter months, that 300% increase in vitamin C becomes very, very important. And another pre and probiotic that we don't really ever think about is raw dairy. Now, there is a lot of controversy around the use of raw dairy, but I, will kinda, I wanna lay out the history of raw dairy and of pasteurization and how it kind of fundamentally got adopted and why it got adopted because we went a lot of generations on raw dairy and there's some historical reasons and policy reasons why pasteurization was so well used and it wasn't down to strictly health issues surrounding raw dairy and milk in particular what raw dairy does to your gut is it builds prebiotic and probiotic bacteria strain because milk has so many enzymes that get killed off with pasteurization, so with heat, that helps break that dairy down and utilize it in first and secondary metabolites in the gut. And with those missing enzymes, that protein and the milk sugars specifically can be hard to digest. And so with raw dairy, whether it be goat or bovine, you get added benefits of vitamins and minerals as well, things like vitamin D and calcium. Because when you heat all that up, it destroys it. And that's why you have to add it back in. So you get synthetic calcium and vitamin D added back into the milk if it's pasteurized. But with raw dairy, all that stuff remains intact. Now, there are some dangers of raw dairy. I mean, obviously, there's a possibility of getting sick while drinking it because there can be things like salmonella that grow in milk that has been unprocessed. And it doesn't last as long in storage. You know, you have a couple of weeks to drink that milk before it starts to sour. Whereas through something like ultra pasteurization, you have more like months to utilize that milk. But there are nutritional degradation properties that go along with that. And I'll outline some of that here. But it's important to realize that with some foods, it's better to consume raw rather than processed and with dairy pasteurized. And that includes things like cheese and yogurt as well. 
you know, something like yogurt, that's a fermentation. You know, raw dairy yogurt is what people used when they couldn't utilize the milk right away. So they would do yogurt or cheese or butter. Because in the 1920s, a lot of families had a milk cow and they would produce their own milk on their property. Cows in the 1920s were producing somewhere around 400 gallons of milk per year. In the year 2000, that number had increased up to almost 2,000 gallons per year. So you had over a quadruple increase in milk production with a single cattle. And that's kind of terrifying. And this was done through the eugenics program in the 1920s, actually. It's easy to forget that America was one of the first countries to adopt the eugenics program. You know, often we think of Nazi Germany and the horrific things that were done, but we were doing it here as well. And it started with animals and specifically farm animals. And that's how we got cattle from producing 400 gallons of milk per year to over 2,000 gallons of milk per year. And the eugenics program was founded by a cousin of Charles Darwin named Francis Galton. He coined the term nature versus nurture and started research and putting ideas around doing optimized genetics for the culture and euthanizing basically and sterilizing people and animals that he saw unfit for society that wasn't going to pass down solid genetic lines. And we all know the history kind of surrounding this, but it's easy to forget we did it with animals. And that's exactly what happened to cattle. They were subjects of eugenics. And so they selectively bred and started manipulating genetically the cattle that were being bred and produced for meat and dairy. And this is how we've ended up with the milk we've ended up with. Because the thing to think about when you're talking about dairy and you're talking about especially raw milk is the healthier the cow is, the healthier the milk is going to be. Do you understand what I'm getting at? If you have an unhealthy cow, one that's been genetically manipulated to overproduce milk, there's going to be some issues that come with that. And so by the 1920s, that had been done. There were laws passed for farmers to euthanize or sterilize non-purebred cattle. And what that did is it caused the gene pool to get a little bit muddy. And it caused cows to become very, very unhealthy and produce very unhealthy milk. And there was a steep rise in people getting sick from raw dairy. Pasteurization techniques had been used since the 1800s. They knew that heating things up killed bacteria from Louis Pasteur's work. And so they started pasteurizing dairy because they were putting out inferior quality than they previously had been through the years when it came to goat milk and cow's milk. So they started with heating the milk up to about 130 degrees for two minutes to kill a lot of the bacteria. And at that temperature, you don't really get too much protein degradation. And some of the enzymes are still kind of maintained at that temperature. Not as many. You definitely compromise the composition of the milk at that temperature. But you could ship it and people could store it a lot longer than previously. And so distribution started to ramp up in the 20s and 30s. And again, with the onboarding of refrigeration, 
at the commercial level and then at the home consumer level, the ability to store things like dairy became a lot easier. There was laws enacted by the USDA <clears throat> that states had to begin pasteurizing milk. But there's also laws enacted by the USDA at the same time in 1924 that farmers had to have very specific genetics in regarding dairy cows. There was actually court dates set for farmers and cows, weirdly enough, to basically create a sterilization campaign around cattle to get kind of purebred genetics into the fold and kind of wipe out this non-purebred genetic pool that had been utilized in the United States for multiple generations. And so, like I mentioned, it created inferior milk, and it created something known as Jones disease, which in the human form is similar to Crohn's disease. So in cattle, they can get an overgrowth of certain bacteria in the gut that causes massive diarrhea, and they can get so dehydrated and it can disrupt their fluid balance so much that they die. And this is very, very well known. This is from a bacteria called Mycobacterium avium subspecies paratuberculosis, or MAP for short. I mean, and it can infect other species as well, things like rabbits and foxes and birds. But in cattle, it's been linked to leprosy, tuberculosis, and if transferred to humans, Crohn's disease. Interestingly, this bacteria has started to become a little bit resistant to heat in milk, specifically speaking. So pasteurization moved from 130 degrees for two minutes or so up to 280 degrees for two seconds. And what that does is it kills way more bacteria and enzyme off than it previously did. And it, you can store milk for even longer. So you'll see milk that's been ultra pasteurized. And that's exactly what that means. And there's more protein degradation and more degradation and unwinding of lactose molecules, which can result in lactose intolerance for people because the enzymes aren't there to digest sugars and to digest proteins. And trying to digest degraded proteins from heat where you acquire rapid protein change can be really, really hard on the gut. And this particular bacteria has started to become a little bit resistant to even that degree of heat. And anybody who's known people that have had Crohn's disease no, it can be a very, very debilitating disease. And the current thinking around it is it's the result of this bacteria and a result of an overgrowth of that particular bacteria and not possessing the enzymes and the correct bacteria to keep it at bay. And I don't know that it necessarily came from milk and came from this pasteurization process, but it's an interesting thing to think about because a lot of people that have lactose intolerance or Crohn's, they have a, obviously a really hard time with dairy, but not a lot of people are drinking raw dairy or eating raw cheese or raw butter. And so they're not inhabiting the gut with proper forms of bacteria that haven't been damaged by heat. I mean, just like we know, antibiotics can become resistant. So does bacteria. And so with something like dairy, it's important to realize keeping the raw product intact is going to set your gut up better than if you were to pasteurize it 
and manipulate it and then add synthetic nutrients back into it. Your body can't utilize those things as effectively. You're dealing with essentially dead tissue because milk is tissue. It's just liquid meat and liquid tissue. I know that doesn't sound the most appetizing. <laughs> I hope you're not drinking a glass of milk right now. But that's compositionally what it is. It's tissue. You know, that's why vegetarian communities in, let's say, India rely so heavily on dairy because they're eating meat. It's just liquid forms of meat, liquid forms of tissue. If you're somebody who struggles with cow's milk, raw goat's milk can be a very, very easy thing to digest. There's less milk sugars in goat's milk, but with just as many enzymes and pre and probiotics that can help your gut and help stabilize the bacteria and the different species inside the gut. Currently, there are about 33 states that sell raw dairy. The rest of the states, it's actually illegal to purchase dairy, raw dairy. There are people that get fined yearly for selling raw dairy in states that don't allow the sale of it, which is kind of a crazy point, but that's the way it's been since the 19. 20s, really. It's remained about 30 states that enable the sale of raw dairy. And again, back to the point of a healthy cow produces healthy milk, it becomes very important to get an idea, if you're going to buy raw milk, to what the conditions are and what types of cattle they're using to produce their milk. Most of the raw dairy farms that are around are really good about keeping very optimal conditions, so they can negate some of the potential harmful bacterial imbalances that can acquire in milk. And so generally, you're pretty safe. You know, they test regularly. The FDA inspects their facilities quite regularly. It's a pretty intensely regulated market for raw dairy. But even if you don't want to drink raw milk, cow's milk or raw goat's milk, think about raw cheese or even raw yogurt. Again, those are both fermentation processes. And so if you can make it through the cheese process or through the yogurt process with a clean product, it's going to be a lot safer. But you're still going to be maintaining those enzymes. Matter of fact, you're going to be increasing those enzymes and probiotics and prebiotics because you've gone through a fermentation process with your raw dairy. So if you're too scared to drink raw dairy, that's fine. But I would highly recommend you switch to raw cheese because at least then you're colonizing the gut with enzymes and pro and prebiotics that haven't been damaged by heat. It may seem like a small thing, but over years and years of consumption, it adds up to create some dysbiosis and potentially adds up to major lactose intolerance. And I think that's what we've seen kind of widespread through a lot of the population because not many people are drinking raw dairy. If you go to countries that are still drinking raw dairy regularly, there's no lactose intolerance, or very little anyway. This really started with ultra-pasteurization, and you can see that through the literature. And I've posted some scientific papers in the show notes, so if you want to take a look at those, feel free. But the timeline is pretty clear. And anybody who consumes raw dairy regularly will kind of tell you the same thing. It doesn't cause any gastric upset or congestion of any type. It's easier for the body to assimilate because it's closer to what we got as humans, as babies. And so if you're looking for a prebiotic, raw dairy is the way to go, bar none. 
it will colonize your gut with prebiotics unlike anything else. So if you're somebody who consumes dairy, whether it's cheese or butter or whatever form you're getting it in, and taking, let's say, a prebiotic, I would ditch your prebiotic in the pill form and switch over to raw dairy because it's going to be far better and far easier for your body to utilize in prebiotic form than an old, sometimes single species prebiotic in a pill form because you need the enzymes along with it is really what I'm saying here. Without the enzymes, your body can't speed those digestive metabolites up and assimilate them into usable nutrients for your cells and for your microbiota. And so if you want to prime your microbiota, prebiotics from raw dairy is the easiest way to get them in your actual diet and the most nutritious way. If you really want to leverage your, your nutritional value and you're eating something like cheese, just switch to raw cheese. It's going to be more expensive, but it's going to save your gut in the long run, or at the very least, incorporate them occasionally into your diet. So all this to be said, there's a lot of myths surrounding dairy and surrounding milk in particular. I mean, there's a lot of studies out there saying that milk isn't a healthy food. You know, there's a lot of people advocating that, you know, people shouldn't be consuming dairy and milk. But largely those studies look at milk that has been pasteurized and is then filled with synthetic nutrients to try to replace what's been taken out. And so if you start looking at studies that properly look at raw dairy and don't demonize it, because that's a hard thing to find too. If you look up studies on raw dairy, mostly it's negative. And this is, again, something that's been going on since the 1920s. There are specific policies and laws still written and passed that propagated this idea of milk is unsafe. We need to kill it with heat which has caused a trickle-down effect of other things, such as Jones disease and Crohn's disease in some instances. So again, with any technology, there's benefits and there's costs, and you're going to have to make the decision on how you want to approach it. But know that when it comes to raw dairy, it's a scale issue. It's a scale issue in the amount of milk that cows are now producing, and it's a scale issue of packing cows too tightly together in an environment where there's communicable diseases. And so selecting from dairy farms that don't do that, generally, you're going to be just fine. Your grandparents and great-grandparents and their parents all consumed raw dairy. That was just how people drank their milk and ate their cheese and consumed their butter. And lactose intolerance was virtually non-existent five generations ago. There was a reason it became so prevalent in the 1980s, when ultra-pasteurization became prevalent and became the industry standard way of pasteurizing milk and cheese and yogurt. Okay, I think that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you guys this next week. As always, get outside, eat good food, and stay well. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. 